This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today, our special guest is Anne Greer, Executive Director of the Virginia Waring International Piano Competition. And I'm Mary Elkins. Anne's career has had many incarnations. In addition to her current work at the Virginia Waring International Piano Competition, she was an award-winning actor, producer, writer, TV host, and publicist, worked in arts education at the Music Center in Los Angeles, and she's currently involved with the Palm Springs Air Museum and serves on the Act for Multiple Sclerosis Board of Directors. Welcome, Anne. We're delighted to have you as our guest. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Anne is also the recipient of the Distinguished Citizens Award from the 42nd State Assembly in California and was nominated as the Citizen of the Year. Anne, please tell us about your background and how it influenced your career and your charitable work. Well, um, I've always been, um, I've always walked to my own drumbeat shall we say, ah. and I'm probably the only one who was in the college theater department that never did drugs. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I spent a lot of my childhood reading and watching people because I was very shy. Um, I was very shy and I was actually very nervous. I was a very nervous little kid. And I remember one time, <laughs> Remember one time a friend of my mother saying, oh, Anne's going to have such trouble driving because she's so skittish, mm-hmm. um, and um, which I find funny. So, <laughs> but because I loved reading and I read lots of novels, especially about foreign countries, I always wanted to travel. And um, I'm a wonderful uh, mimic, shall we say? I can uh, mimic... Uh, voices, which also makes it very good for languages. Um, And um, so when I was going through high school, um, I took uh, French, uh, you know, throughout and music and, of course, theater. But when I went to college, I wanted to really learn. I wanted to go to a college that was about the humanities, about the liberal arts. And I wanted to go to a college where I could indulge, if you will, all of my interests. So I went to Scripps College for Women in Claremont, California. Um, I was very lucky and got a, a state scholarship for the tuition and then worked in the cafeteria uh, for extra money and got a loan. 
And uh, the wonderful thing about scripts is that they really teach you to think, to think for yourself and to think outside the box. Hmm. And one of the reasons why I chose a women's college is because at that time, there was documentation that girls were very, very outgoing and aggressive, and they would answer questions until they hit puberty. And then when they hit puberty, it was all about the boys. Right. And then in school, you didn't want to be smarter than the boys. So, of course, uh, they wouldn't be uh, aggressive about their learning. And I thought, I don't want to deal with that at all. I will go to a woman's college so I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm turning off the boys. So it was a great experience. Um and that's where I started thinking about what do I want to do and how do I think outside the box? I do not want a nine to five job that I'm locked into. And, um, and I'm an avid animal person and I had a little tiny poodle. Um, and so when I moved to Los Angeles after college and after going to the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, um, I definitely didn't want to be stuck nine to five because the poor little dog needed to be walked in the middle of the day. <laughs> yes. So, um, so anyway, so that's, that's how it uh, started and doing, um, doing um, auditions, theatrical auditions, you know, Los Angeles is a very vibrant uh, small theater. There's like over 200 small 99 seat theaters. So I was just auditioning for everything, uh, doing telemarketing during the day for three or four hours to make ends meet. Uh, it was a great way to meet people. And I auditioned for this company called Twelfth Night Repertory. And they were doing these wonderful original shows in the schools. And these were like mini musicals, uh, multi-ethnic um, and it was it was a wonderful experience because there's nothing like performing in front of 300 kids, let's say little kids who are all looking at you with these smiling faces. Um, I, and it was extremely rewarding because I knew I was making a difference. Good. And I'm getting choked up because. Yeah. It, yeah. So That's anyway. Okay. Um, and so, so uh, that, that that theater company, I joined that theater company in uh, to help them with uh, marketing and sales. And the time you couldn't do this, but I remember the producer saying very, <laughs> he said to me, Anne, you're a wonderful actress. He said, um, I wish I could hire you, but you're the wrong color. I can't. So um, I'm, I'm Caucasian. And that didn't bother me at all. So I helped them um, grow and get into more schools. And then when it was time for a new cast, I was able to get my actor's equity card and worked with them as an actress. And then at the time, they were very interested in going into television. Um, and so they did a deal with KCET for... Um, for a series, TNRC, that's their acronym, Presents. And um, they got a, an LA area Emmy for um, Ensemble. And they got an Action for Children's Television Award. 
for the quality of it. And the shows that they did at the time, there was one called Multi-Ethnic Mythology, where they did different heroes. Um, they, you know, did Sacagawea. Uh, they did Charles Drew, you know, about blood platelets. And it was a wonderful series. And um, Brian Stokes Mitchell, who is now one of the leading men on Broadway, he was actually in the cast that they had down in San Diego. And so he's in those TV shows back then. Oh, and that's fun. Yeah. That's fun to a hear lot about of fun. It. And thanks mm -hmm. for being so open emotionally with us. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Actress. So yeah. Yeah. Right. anyway, so that got me interested in looking at um, the business side and everything. And so after Twelfth uh, Night, TNRC closed because everyone wanted to do, to do television. So they forgot their core audience. And the thing that's so great about having a live theater troupe is that the marketing research, if you will, is much easier to do and less expensive if you do it on stage. Mm. versus if you try and do it on television, the, the uh, expenses are so much more. And by going to the schools the way we did, um, there were very few props. It was mainly musical instruments and a few props, but no sets. So it was very cost, eff cost effective, cost efficient, cost effective. The money went to the actors, to the director. And so when TNRC temporarily uh, closed, or took a hiatus because they wanted to pursue television, that's when I got into home video. And I was very lucky and worked for a woman named Robin Montgomery, um, who recently passed away, and worked for Norman Lear's company, um, Embassy Home Video. So um, it was Jerry Parencio, Alan Horn. They're the ones who came out and distributed Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner. Uh, Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. They did wonderful work and it was a great learning experience. I worked for the director of marketing and uh, for her, that's who Robin Montgomery was. So I learned about press releases and flyers and one sheets and the whole, the whole nine yards. And she was a great, great mentor. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, oh, well, you know, it sounds like oh, you, you anyway. are so prepared to take over being the executive uh, director of the Waring International Piano Competition. Can you tell our listeners, just changing the subject sure. a bit, that, um, tell us what it is, first of all, and what you do for it. It sounds like this well, you're prepared for it. And also, how do you determine the winner, um, who's involved, and um, talk about the young people. That sure, sure. Would love to. The... Um, Waring International Piano Competition actually started in 1983. Um, that's when it was formally became a nonprofit. It grew out of a piano conference at the local uh, junior college, College of the Desert, here in Palm Desert. And um, it, uh, it, it started just as um, a, a piano conference and little competitions for all age groups and little by little it grew and they could no longer do it every year or every two years and then by um, by the time I got involved the name had changed 
And now it was an international competition in the fact that contestants came from all over the world. Mm. And so you have to plan. So right now, it's every two years, except that the pandemic interrupted that. So the competition that would have been in 21 is going to be next year in 22. Uh, It's going to be in April of 2022. Um, And what this is, is a launching ground, if you will, launching pad to encourage young virtuoso pianists. We have three age groups. We have 12 and under, and we have 13 through 17. And those are together. And then two years later, we do the adults, Mm. 18 to 21. I'm sorry, 18 to 30. Oh. Oh, yeah. 18 to 30. Anyway, um, so we try to bring to the Coachella Valley, the finest up-and-coming young pianists. And you won't believe the quality of these kids and even the young adults. Um, I will mention um, one name. There's a pianist named George Lee, L-I, And he participated in our 2005 competition as when he was five or six. And he might have even worn great big blocks on his feet to reach the pedals. Okay. It's just picture a piano because there are no such things as small baby pianos, right? That's right. Um, Now, he, um, I don't think he one in 2005. I'm not sure. It was my first year, and I just came in at the last minute to help with PR. But I will tell you this. He's a recording star. He concertizes all over the world, making thousands of dollars. Um, And that's just one example. Another example is a young man named Jan, J-A-N, Lyseski. L I S as in Sam, I E C as in Charlie, K I. He is concertizing all over the world. Hmm. Um, he's got management in New York, Berlin, London, Tokyo. Um, he was our 2007 junior solo winner when he was 12 years old. By the age of 15, he had a five-CD deal with Deutsche Grammophon, which is probably the most prestigious classical music label in the world. And, you know, his career just was taking off. Um, And so imagine if you could – imagine watching Roger Federer play tennis when he was 12 or 13 – Right. How much fun would that have been? So that's what that's what we tell people. You are hearing the future stars of the concert stage. Now, how is the judging done? Um, we bring in um, concert pianists and um, piano 
professors from um, basically from the United States and Canada. Uh, and we alternate so we don't always we never have the same judges year after year after year and we invite them to come and be the adjudicators hmm. um and we give them sheets they take notes and when they go to deliberate um who advances and how we have two moderators there so that there's no discussion um, and they assign a number from one to five and they take notes. And then when, then at the end of hearing everyone in the first round, they then look at their notes and they give them numbers on the sheet. The moderator collects the numbers, adds them up and the top X number advance. Mm. Um, because we, tr we want to make it as unbiased as possible. They do not, they know, all the contestants are known by a number, not by a name. They do not receive any biographical information on them until after it's all over. Um, and the people who listen to the recordings the first time, uh, we ask, that we, um, they're totally different from any of the judges. Hmm. Uh, and we have a new policy now whereby if someone enters, the, enters, applies and enters to be in the competition and is accepted, and if we discover that they're studying with someone who is going to be a judge that year, we say, we're sorry, we refund the money because we don't want any appearance mm -hmm. of partiality mm -hmm. or or anything like that yeah. and we go out of our way to make the contestants feel welcome so we put we house them with families locally so that they get a sense of the of the area because a lot of them are especially the the adults are from overseas but but they're studying here you know um we get more international for the younger ones, actually, because they're coming with at least one parent mm -hmm. as a chaperone. And then we put the contestant and the, the sh and the parent or the teacher up. And it's very rigorous. Even the, tw the uh, 12 and under, they have to have, they have to have memorized 60 minutes of diverse repertoire representing um, the uh, 17th or 18th century, representing the 19th century, and representing the 20th century. That's huge. That's it is really wonderful. It, it, it is huge. So it's really for the ones who are really serious. And what we see happen is that the younger ones, a lot of them, um, they do this. And by the time they get to be 18, let's say, uh, they've moved on to other things. So our artistic committee feels it's very important to maintain the older group because those are the ones who are trying to make a career. Most of them are in graduates, music conser conservatories. They might be teaching uh, themselves and they're very serious about it. Um, so it, it's the two, the two divisions that we do it with the younger ones and the older ones are very different. Um, but any way you slice it, it's great. 
if people is a serious classical music lover or if they just want to come because during the competition rounds before the finals it's free it's open to the public you can come for an hour you can come for two hours so it's a great introduction for the community and it is a service because like i said all the beginning rounds are free only the solo final and the concerto finals are a paid ticket and when i say concerto finals i mean you will hear at least three concerto with full orchestra nice Mm -hmm. Very, very nice. I also want to ask you, you've lived in France mm -hmm. and you've worked with young people in South Korea. Mm -hmm. So talk about your experience in those countries and what it taught you about different cultures. Uh, well, um, I'm a firm believer in when in Rome, do as the Romans. So I tried to find out as much as I could about France before I went there to go to school, you know. Uh, especially the cultural differences. For example, Americans are very friendly and they smile a lot. And when I was in France, it's like you don't do that because um, you have to be introduced and they'll think that you're too, uh, they'll think that you're loose because the social mores are very different. I never had any problems in, in France. Um, I wore black stockings and black loafers and uh, a raincoat and scarves <laughs> and gloves. Uh, so the, the, people thought I was from, you know, Italy or Spain or something. They never thought I was American. The experience of, of being in, in Paris for a year was amazing. I got over my fear of crossing the street <laughs> without the light. Uh, Around I, I, the 12, right? Right. Um, I figured out how to read a map, um, east, west, where, you know, what's really um, one of the most important things you can learn is when you come out of the subway, where are you? There are always usually four exits from each subway stop. New York, it's the same thing. Um, and so where are you and which way do you go? Very important skill. Um, <laughs> no kidding. Now, yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. In Korea, what was nice is that they really respect older people, um, and so the older you are, the better it is. So mm. no one is ashamed of revealing their age. I mention this because Hollywood is the total opposite. So that was very refreshing. Um, I was in Busan which is the very south of Korea, uh, very, very traditional, old-fashioned, uh, extremely healthy. When I say healthy, there were four of us Americans that went over there. Each of us lost 15 pounds the first month uh, because of the diet. There's very, little, um, there's very little dairy in their diet, almost no dairy, as a matter of fact. Um, and it's mainly uh, vegetables, fish, and a little bit of meat. Uh, and that's, we were that's one of the blue zones that's written up in that in those cookbooks and stuff, where there are very, very many people who live well past a hundred. Right. So yeah, I think and, it's interesting. Please bring it up. Uh, and also with the, um, uh, the along with the diet, um, most people take public transport or walk. We were averaging four miles a day walking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So, and all of your universities and all of your temples are on the top of hills. So you got to <laughs> climb. <laughs> Perfect. I love yeah. it. I love yeah. it. You worked with children there though, right? I worked with, uh, with graduate animation students or oh. digital media arts um, students. Yes, because um, it was a program that they wanted to bring in native English speakers and the students had to be able to understand you without an interpreter. They wouldn't pay for an interpreter. So, um, but it, that also was a great experience. Um, if I had been there by myself without three other professors that I knew, um, I probably would have done more stuff on my own uh, to reach more people and to learn the, the language. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up, oh, getting into a Korean for foreign students class four weeks after it started and hired a tutor to help me Mm -hmm. um, because it's it's a it's a very the alphabet is very easy to learn um, but the language itself isn't Mm -hmm. and its structure is more similar to Japanese than to Chinese Um, which is interesting. And you have two groups, two kinds of vocabulary. So for example, if I'm eating with my friends, I'm going to use the verb to eat. Let's go out and eat. If I'm addressing my parents or someone older that is, that is deserving of more respect, I'm going to say, where shall we dine? Ah. So it's different vocabulary based on your social strata. Also, it's Confucius law, uh, which means you do what is best for the community. You (laughs) don't do necessarily what you as an individual want to do. Hmm. Uh Um, And of course, you have those clashes in the United States when you've got um, people coming over and they're 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 the um, what do I want to say? So the children. So you have these conflicts between the children of first generation immigrants. Right. Talking about the cultural differences in those countries, how do you re- think that it, the differences in the culture reflect on education there? Oh, the, the education is very different. Um, in Korea, professor is the highest uh, respected profession. So there are no standards because no one would dream of insulting a professor if you're a professor and saying are you teaching the curriculum we want you to teach uh there was a news story about a kid who came um in seoul or something or i don't know where he was um where he had gotten a bad grade and he ended up in the hospital from the beating he got from his parents um so um, education is highly valued. Uh, professors in Korea get 10% discount off of public, uh, off of the trains and the planes within the country. Um, so they value education very, very highly. Um, and and it, there's a lot of status. Mm-hmm. You do not talk to people you don't know. <laughs> you must be introduced. Um, you have to be aware that when the elevator opens, you need to push out because they'll immediately start pushing in. 
Um, <laughs> That's yeah. important to know. Yes, it's I also very wanted to, to ask you about uh, your work as managing producer of the Educational Theater Company. Ah, that okay. has to do with education too. So tell us a little bit about that. The Educational Theater Company was the heir, heir, heir apparent to Twelfth Night Repertory. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. So, um, in, um, so when there was a recession in 92, and um, I lost the job at Warehouse Records mm-hmm. because of, you know, they cut 40% of the staff. Um, I helped TNRC regroup, and we formed a new nonprofit. Uh, TNRC Twelfth Night doesn't do Shakespeare, so we did Educational Theater Company, mm-hmm. and we picked up the old scripts. We redid them. Uh, we worked with the Los Angeles Unified School District on basically social issues, drug and alcohol prevention, pregnancy prevention, respect and tolerance. Um, uh, and we worked with the Long Beach Unified School District. And there we went from $60,000 in revenues My when I took it over and formed the new one. I was able to get an interest-free loan against the incoming contract from LAUSD. And then by the time I left ETC, nine years later, um, we had 300000 in revenues each year. Wow. These were from performances in the schools and workshops. And I was a stickler in, in terms of working with the creative people, um, you do your creative thing, but no, you can't use ain't and you can't have bad grammar. And the shows there were, I would say, were um, sort of like, uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, okay. Let's say NCIS meets, oh my gosh, the Muppets, Sesame Street. Okay. So we were dealing with serious topics, including AIDS. But we were presenting the information in small chunks that the kids could handle and understand. So, you know, we we did the, um, and I remember (laughs) Kaiser Permanente has a touring theater, or they did at the time, and they would always come and see our shows and try and figure out uh, what we were doing. Um, And what what we were doing is we were looking at what's the message, what do we want to deliver, and then from there, we'd say, okay, how do we do this? Not the other way around. Most people start with, gee, I want to write, I'm going to write a play, a playlet. Who's my protagonist? And they look at it from that structure as opposed to what message, messages do we want the kids to pick up and follow? Mm. Um, and so we were very careful to make sure that what we portrayed on stage was not giving them bad ideas. So, yeah, the um, one of the best lines was a a young Latina woman wrote it um, where she's having an argument with her boyfriend and he says, come on, babe, it's prom night. Everyone loses their virginity on prom night. If you loved me, you'd do it. And she says, "Uh uh-uh, if you loved me, you would respect me and you wouldn't ask me to do this. Hmm. And I mean, you can imagine... If you're doing it in front of junior 
junior and senior kids, I mean, uh, the, the women, I mean, the young women just went crazy, yeah. you know, you know, in terms of, yay. So you have to give them the tools, what yeah. to say, because you don't, they're not getting it. You're not sure where they're getting it. Right. Yeah. It's very, you were a successful actress in your own right, and you earned a number of accolades in that arena. Talk about that and talk about what your favorite role was. Well, probably the, the most fun role was to play the girl in Hot Al Baltimore by Lanford Wilson. And that's the one that, that I got um, a drama log performance award for. It is a total tour de force where is she manic? Is she depressive? You know, what's going on with her? Is she crazy? And I, um, you get to do all kinds of different things. And once, this is going to sound so bizarre, but when I was a little kid, it was like, oh, I want to win an Oscar. I want to win an Oscar. Everybody wants to win an Oscar, right? Yeah. And then I went to New York after, and I got the notice about the award in New York. So I was pursuing it in New York. And when I got it, I thought, you know, you feel great for two or three days and then the high wears off. And I go, oh, and you're back to your regular life. And then it goes, oh, I bet that's what winning an Oscar is like. It's a great high for two or three days and then it wears off. And I started, um, I did the rounds and in New York, there's so many theaters and there's so much, you get to do so much in a very short period of time. I probably was able to do in New York in six weeks, what it would have taken me eight months to do in, in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized, you know, I'm not happy doing this. So I got a hold of what color is your parachute. And I actually did all the exercises in that book. And I went, okay, I want to go back to doing stuff with in collaboration with people and I want to go back to doing the stuff in the schools because that's what really gives me joy. So at that point, um, I returned to Los Angeles. And um, uh, anyway, so now I only do, if I'm going to do a project theatrically as a performer, it has to be something I really, really want to do that I really enjoy. And it definitely has to be union. So. Mm-hmm. Which is a catch-22, because how do you keep your skills up, you know? But, okay. uh, but there, you know, there are local workshops and everything. So do I have time to talk about the upcoming uh, competition for 2022? Yes, in terms of, the of course. Of course. Okay. Tell us about that, and then we'll wind up. That sounds great. Um, so the Wearing International Piano Competition, and you can go on the website, uh, you know, do a Google search or Yahoo search or whatever, April 10th through the 18th, 2022 in Palm Desert, California. And I have the event schedule just printed. I need to put it up on the website. Um, The 15th evening is the solo finals. And I believe those tickets are $40. It's a very small theater. And we will have some type of live streaming Mm. uh, for others to on campus and then easter is the 17th of april and then on april 18th at six o'clock we will have the three concerto finals finalists play full concerto with orchestra then the judges will deliberate 
we'll have the solo winner play a piece. Uh, then we'll pre present the we'll announce and present the awards. Those tickets, I believe, start at thirty five dollars for the balcony and go up to one hundred and twenty six dollars. And that's through the McCallum Theater. Okay. And anyone who wants to buy, you can buy tickets now for the concerto finals at McCallumTheaterRE.com. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I definitely hope that Kathy and I will be able to come to that. And for our listeners, our guest today on Late Boomers has been Ann Greer, a firm advocate of the arts and a woman who not only has earned her own accolades as an artist, but has made a difference in the lives of others by bringing the arts to young people across the world. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you. And Anne can be reached, uh, or information about all what she's talked about can be found at www.vwipc, which is the Virginia Waring International Pian Piano Competition, Org. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank and you. listeners, for our listeners, please write to us and give us some feedback on our podcast by visiting our website, lateboomers.biz, that's B-I-Z. Also follow Late Boomers on Instagram and follow me, Kathy Worthington and Mary Elkins. We strive to serve, entertain and inspire you. And thanks so much again, Anne. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. 
Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.